The information and advice presented in this podcast are general in nature and are not intended to replace or substitute speaking with your healthcare providers. Please consult your healthcare team with any questions or concerns regarding your medical condition. The content presented in our podcast series has been provided by a caregiver of a loved one who battled ALS for six years. Hello, and welcome to the ALSPathways.ca podcast series. Since you're listening, there's a good chance you or someone you know or love has recently been diagnosed with ALS. There are probably a million questions swirling in your head. What is ALS? Why me? What's happening to my body? Well, that's exactly why we've created this podcast, to help address some of your concerns and help you prepare for what may occur with ALS. At the moment, you may be overwhelmed by emotions, feelings of fear, uncertainty, or even confusion. You should know that this is completely normal and expected. But remember, you are not alone. In fact, there are many people and resources available to help support you along your journey. Family and friends can serve as pillars of emotional and physical support. Healthcare providers from a range of disciplines can work with you at every step of the way to ensure you have a comprehensive care plan that fits your needs. And of course, there are numerous advocacy groups and ALS organizations you can turn to for additional support. We'll cover all of this and a wide range of ALS-related topics over the course of this podcast series. Some of these topics may help you better understand the science of ALS and how the disease may affect your body. Others will offer tips and interventions for helping manage your symptoms. We'll also be speaking with current ALS patients who will share their stories and unique experiences. And lastly, the format of these podcasts gives us a unique opportunity to interview a mix of healthcare professionals and disease specialists, all of whom have experience treating, managing, and helping people with ALS. These one-on-one interviews may allow you to gain insight and learn first-hand tips from many different disease experts. This podcast was created to help you better understand and manage your disease. We believe the more you learn about ALS, the better prepared you may be for the road ahead. With that said, we should point out that this podcast series is in no way intended to replace or substitute speaking directly with your healthcare providers. Maintaining an honest and open dialogue with them is a good way to receive the guidance and support you need. Let's start from the beginning. What is ALS? If you haven't heard of ALS before and missed the viral internet craze of people raising money for ALS research by pouring buckets of ice water on their heads, maybe you're more familiar with its nickname, Lou Gehrig's disease. Even though ALS was discovered in the 1860s, it was ultimately the famous and much-beloved New York Yankees baseball player Lou Gehrig who brought national and international attention to the disease after he was diagnosed in 1939. Lou Gehrig played with Babe Ruth in the 1920s and 1930s and held a record for playing more consecutive games than any other player. He was often referred to as the Iron Horse of Baseball. To this day, the disease is almost exclusively associated with his name. 
Let's say you haven't heard of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. You may have heard of the former professional football player Steve Gleason. Three years after Gleason retired from the NFL, he was diagnosed with ALS. To this day, Gleason has set a positive example for people facing hardships. When detailing part of his experience with ALS, Gleason said, I intend to continue living a purposeful, productive life and do what I love. Former Canadian Football League running back Michael Soles, who played for both the Edmonton Eskimos and Montreal Alouettes, was diagnosed with ALS in 2005. Since then, he has been an advocate for people with ALS by promoting fundraising for research for this disease. The word ALS is actually an acronym. It stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Let's break down amyotrophic. Amyotrophic comes from the Greek language. A means no, myo refers to muscle, and trophic means nourishment, no muscle nourishment. After all, that's what ALS is, a disease that affects your muscles. More specifically, it affects the parts of your nervous system that control your voluntary muscles, the muscles that help you move at will, like your arms and legs. As ALS progresses over time, you gradually lose the strength of these muscles, and you become more limited in your movements. Eventually, you may begin losing control of the muscles that control your breathing, as well as your ability to chew and swallow. Later in this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the ways you and your healthcare provider can track and monitor your muscle function over time. Now we know what ALS does, but the question remains, how does ALS do it? To answer that, let's dive into the science behind it. ALS is what's referred to as a neurological or neurodegenerative disease, which is a broad category of diseases that affect your neurological system, which typically refers to your brain, spine, and the nerves that connect them all. So even though ALS affects your muscles, it actually begins in the brain. ALS affects a type of cell called a nerve cell, commonly referred to as a motor neuron. Your body is made up of different types of cells, over 200 types, in fact. There are red blood cells and white blood cells, different types of skin, bone, and fat cells, and cells that line your blood vessels. Each of these cells plays a vital part in helping your body function properly. Nerve cells, or motor neurons, extend from the brain to the spinal cord, and from the spinal cord to all the voluntary muscles throughout your body. Simply put, they serve as a line of communication between your brain and body, transmitting information using electrical signals and nerve impulses. In the most basic sense, when your brain decides to do something, nerve cells tell your muscles to do it. When you decide to take a step forward, nerve cells tell your leg to bend in an upward motion. When your brain decides to catch a baseball, nerve cells tell your arm to rise into the air and your fingers to splay outwards. Motor neurons allow you to walk, talk, and move freely, chew your food, and even breathe. Unfortunately, when someone has ALS, some of these motor neurons progressively stop working. This line of communication is gradually cut off, 
and over time, the brain loses its ability to initiate and control certain muscle functions. You may hear ALS referred to as a neurodegenerative disease. A neurodegenerative disease is an umbrella term for a range of conditions that affect nerve cells and result in a progressive decline in function of these cells. As time passes, more motor neurons stop working, and your brain has a more difficult time telling muscles what to do, leading to weakening muscles and loss of mobility. Many people with ALS eventually lose their ability to lead a completely independent life. While there's no way to stop or reverse the effects of ALS, as mentioned before, some best practices are to constantly monitor your symptoms and muscle function, educate yourself about ALS, as you're doing now, and speak often with your healthcare providers. Okay, so I've just thrown a lot of information at you. Let's pause. Over the course of the podcast, we'll stop occasionally to take a breather. Pause the podcast if you'd like, reflect, and write down anything that caught your ear. During these breaks, I'm going to offer support tips that may help you. You can start practicing these tips today. I hope they may be of help to you. The first support tip is vital. Surround yourself with positive people. There's no doubt a diagnosis of ALS can be devastating. Surrounding yourself with people who love and support you is a reminder that you don't have to face ALS alone. Within that supportive team, there may be others who have faced hardships as well. Connect with them and draw from their strength, guidance, and inspiration. Let's continue. We've talked a lot about ALS weakening your muscles and limiting your movement. But what are the specific symptoms of ALS? What should you and your healthcare providers be monitoring your body for? The first thing to know about ALS symptoms is that they're unique to every person. In fact, no two people with ALS share the same symptom set. Two newly diagnosed patients may experience their disease in very different ways. One ALS patient may walk just fine, but have trouble chewing his or her food while someone else may need assistance walking but can speak and eat without complication. We often identify symptoms by which region of the body they affect. Starting from the top of your head and working downward, symptoms are often organized into four different categories or domains, commonly referred to as bulbar function, respiratory function, fine motor tasks, and gross motor tasks. One of the tests to measure the progression of these symptoms over time is called the ALS-FRSR scale. In a few minutes, we'll discuss the importance of the ALS-FRSR scale in tracking your disease. Let's start with bulbar function, which refers to head and neck symptoms. There are over 600 muscles in the human body, and many of these are located in the bulbar region of your head and neck. They control everything from raising your eyelids to puckering your lips to using your jaw to chew. When the motor neurons reaching your head and neck are affected, it is possible to experience difficulties with chewing and swallowing, excess saliva, impaired speech, and even a condition called pseudobulbar effect, PBA, or emotional lability. PBA is characterized by excessive emotional reactions, such as laughing or crying, that's exaggerated or doesn't match how you feel. 
Bulbar symptoms also affect vital body functions, such as eating and drinking, and require special care and attention. These symptoms, along with all others, should be discussed with your healthcare providers. The next group is respiratory functions. As muscles involved in respiration, breathing, weaken, it becomes harder for you to breathe. Symptoms can include shortness of breath, restricted breathing, and lifestyle disturbances like difficulty sleeping. If you experience trouble breathing, it's vitally important for you to engage your healthcare providers and intervene early, as respiratory failure is the leading cause of death among people with ALS. Later in this podcast series, we'll review ways that may assist your breathing. Then there are fine motor symptoms, which often involve the small muscles in your hands, fingers, and wrists. These symptoms can be some of the most inconvenient to experience because they may limit your movement and cause disruptions with your day-to-day routine. For example, you may experience trouble dressing or maintaining hygiene, impaired handwriting, or difficulty preparing food. As these symptoms worsen, you may have to learn strategies to adapt to these new circumstances. It may not always be easy, but once again, don't do it alone. There are healthcare providers, loved ones, and organizations dedicated to supporting you every step of the way. Lastly, there are gross motor symptoms, which affect your large muscle groups that coordinate activities like walking, keeping balance, and changing positions. In many cases, these symptoms affect your mobility and may lead to tripping, difficulty ascending and descending stairs, and foot drop. While not true for everyone, the earliest symptoms many people with ALS experience are muscle twitching in the arms, legs, shoulders, or tongue. Often you may hear it referred to as fasciculation, muscle cramps, tightness, muscle weakness, slurred speech, or difficulty chewing or swallowing. If at any moment, you believe a symptom is getting worse or a new symptom is developing, talk with your healthcare providers immediately. Remember, symptoms increase as the disease progresses, so the quicker you can educate yourself on ways to manage these symptoms, the more prepared you may be going forward. There are three things to keep in mind in the future. First, as I said before, everyone experiences ALS differently. That means you likely won't experience symptoms across all regions of the body, at least not early in your disease course. Second, there are certain functions ALS may not affect. For example, many people with ALS have preserved senses as in sight, touch, taste, hearing, and smell. And third, many people with ALS are still able to control their bladder and bowel functions. It is also important to mention that although some people with ALS retain an alert mind, it is not uncommon for others to experience cognitive or behavioral changes. Some symptoms of impaired cognitive ability and behavioral changes include a change in personality and acting uncharacteristically, conducting in inappropriate, embarrassing, or childlike mannerisms, making inappropriate comments, also referred to as having a lack of filter, difficulty making decisions, or making decisions that are inconsistent with past view or behavior, impairments in thinking, reasoning, or problem-solving, decreased attention to hygiene, such as bathing, grooming, dressing, and using the washroom, inability to follow instruction, 
Changes in language processing, such as the use of improper grammar, difficulty spelling, or speaking becomes nonsensical. Keep in mind that ALS affects everyone differently, and that changes in cognitive function are no different. While some may experience cognitive changes with behavioral dysfunction, others will not. Still others may not experience any changes in thinking or behavior. If you or your loved one experience any cognitive changes, talk to your healthcare team about any management strategies that may be available. Time for another break. Your second support tip may seem obvious, but it's too often ignored or overlooked. Ask questions. If you ever have a question, if something doesn't make sense, if you notice something new or different about your body, ask your healthcare providers right away. They're best suited to answer your questions and get you on the right track. You may find it helpful to keep a journal of your questions if you are unable to ask them right away. Now let's talk about ways you and your healthcare provider can monitor your symptoms and track your disease activity. There are several tests that do this, but the three most common are strength measurements, respiratory assessments, and function-based questionnaires. Let's start with strength measurements. Since muscle weakness is a major feature of ALS, it makes sense that measuring strength over time can help determine how quickly ALS is progressing. Another test assesses respiratory function. To assess lung capacity over time, healthcare providers often administer what's called a forced vital capacity test, or FVC. Lastly, there are function-based questionnaires. These are verbally administered by your healthcare provider. They ask you to rate how well different muscle groups are functioning based on a sliding scale. The individual scores for each muscle group are then tallied, giving you a high-level assessment of overall muscle function. There are many different types of questionnaires, but one of the most widely accepted tests used in clinical trials is called the ALS Functional Rating Scale Revised, or ALS-FRSR. Knowing more about this scale and its role in helping you monitor and manage your disease is very important. In fact, in the future, we'll have an entire podcast dedicated to this very subject. Let's take another pause and talk about support tip number three. For the past few minutes, we've been talking extensively about physical symptoms. But beyond those physical symptoms, ALS can place a real emotional burden on you. Everyone copes with their diagnosis differently, and throughout your journey, it's important that you don't forget to consider your emotional health. Many people benefit from seeking professional help. Counselors and therapists may help you and your loved ones get a better handle on thoughts and feelings you may be having. And remember, you are not alone. Approximately 2,500 to 3,000 people in Canada are currently living with ALS, and every 2 in 100,000 people are diagnosed annually. ALS can affect both men and women of all ethnic and socioeconomic groups. ALS truly can affect anyone. With that said, scientists have identified some interesting patterns among the types of people who get ALS. For instance, most people develop ALS between the ages of 40 and 70, with an average age of 55. This isn't to say it doesn't affect people in their 20s and 30s. It does. It's just not as prevalent. 
Once again, this may not describe you, it's just a pattern that has emerged. What actually causes ALS? What specific traits, behaviors, or risk factors do you share with other ALS patients? Scientists and researchers don't really know what causes ALS. There are many ongoing research studies investigating risk factors, but no one conclusively understands why some people develop ALS as opposed to others. Now, this isn't to say that no progress has been made. There are several hypotheses that suggest certain risk factors that may contribute to the loss of motor neurons in the brain that could lead to the subsequent development of ALS. For example, scientists know that in rare cases, ALS is inherited. This holds true for about 10% of patients. However, the other 90% have what's classified as sporadic ALS, which is just a term for being random and unknown. Other areas of research into possible risk factors of ALS include certain genetic mutations or defects, along with lifestyle risk factors like smoking. Researchers are looking to possible occupational hazards, such as jobs that expose people to certain chemicals, metals, or even electromagnetic fields. As you can see, there's a lot of work being done on many scientific fronts, and research is continuously revealing new information that may one day lead us to better understand the cause or causes of ALS. Time for today's last support tip. Stay social. Much like our suggestion to surround yourself with positive people, sometimes there's no better treatment or coping mechanism than surrounding yourself with family, friends, and loved ones. Also, part of staying social means getting involved with patient service groups and connecting to other people with ALS. Remember, there are approximately 2,500 to 3,000 people with ALS in Canada. Many have similar experiences and can provide practical guidance and counsel. We've covered a lot of ground and information today. Staying educated about ALS and speaking regularly with your healthcare providers are important things you can do to help manage your disease. In the next episode, we're going to discuss strategies and interventions that may help you manage your symptoms. And after that, we'll focus on the caregiver. What is a caregiver? What are the roles and responsibilities of a caregiver? And how can they take care of loved ones with ALS without forgetting to look after their own needs? If you're looking for more information on ALS, you can always visit our website at alspathways.ca. While you're there, or if you've downloaded this podcast on iTunes or Google Play, let us know if you've enjoyed listening today. Please rate the podcast and tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, what we can do better. Ultimately, this will help us provide richer content in the future. Also, feel free to suggest additional topics of interest you'd like us to cover. We read all suggestions and take everything into consideration. Once again, this has been the ALSPathways.ca podcast series. Thanks for listening. Until next time.